Attention all crooks, lowlives, and lawbreakers. Do yourselves a favor and crawl back into your filthy tenements, you human cockroaches. Or get your ugly face punched to custard by the new Justice Team. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome all to this week's edition of the uh, Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this week, I am your uh, moderator and MC, I, I guess, uh, David Grubbs, uh, from my, uh, my office at the University of Georgia, which has much more stuff on the walls now. Yeah, I was up there last week. It was, uh, it was nice. It was almost homey. <laughs> well, I've got, at least I've got pictures of comfortable hobbit holes up on the wall. So, I, I, you know, if, if I want to look at something a little more in, non-institutionally domestic, I can. So, yeah, uh, with me, like usual, uh, Michael Farmer. Uh, how are you doing this uh, this week, Michael? I'm, uh, I'm I'm pretty good. The semester is uh, getting deeper and deeper. I have to prepare my students for this big statewide exam. Well, still less, hopefully less stress, uh, less stress th- this week than last week. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, also, uh, Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College. Um, you there, Nathan? Oh, I'm here. I'm doing great. Awesome. And I've got a question for Gilmore. How does it feel to be at the very top of our Yahoo football pick 'em pool? You know, honestly, Michael, I hadn't even looked at the results. I, I was still bummed that the Colts lost their season opener, so I haven't thought about football all day. You're, uh, you're number one and I'm number two, and I would be up there with you if I had not been foolish enough to pick the, uh, the Vikings to beat the Saints. <laughs> We have a football pool? Uh, uh, well, I didn't bother inviting you, David, because you don't do sports, but yes. <laughs> yes, some of us have a football wise. pool. <laughs> it was probably wiser not to include me. I would have no, I would just be che- like, they've got a sweet mascot. It would be like that Cheers episode where uh, Diane wins every week by betting on which team has a foreign-born conductor for their, for their city's symphony. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, that I would be using criteria such as that. <laughs> um, well, let's see. What have we got going on the blog this week, guys? Um, I saw a uh, um, one of your regular weekly posts, Nathan. Yeah, I've been doing my regular Bible posts, so those are there to enjoy. I also wrote, I finally wrote my Apologia for Jaws post, and it's gotten a little bit of feedback, so I'm enjoying that. Also, why on earth do you think the first half of Jaws is worse than the second half? <laughs> because I've watched it. I've been waiting to ask you that since you started writing that post in, like, what, March? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. I, I, I think, you know, I think Nathan likes the second half of Jaws for the same reason that I happen to like particular movies, and that's because I see them you know, sort of reenacting a kind of archetypal story that's very meaningful for me. You have seen the part where the shark comes out of the water, right, Nathan? (laughs) (laughs) It 
It's what the shark means, Michael. But you, you have get all seen that the meaning same... from the first. Ha- this is a this is a debate for a different episode, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just how far uh, must we suspend disbelief? Yeah, I, I suppose I'll address that on the blog, Michael. All right, we'll fight oh. about it there. So uh, tune in for that. <laughs> um, anything, any any other shopkeeping we want to get done before uh, uh, diving into a, a a series of riveting questions? Uh, we did get an email from regular listener and friend from the CWC radio show, Sam Mulberry. Uh, his input has shaped this week's episode. So Indeed. We Sam was also the only Sam. person in our league to pick the Vikings, but he has a better excuse than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just stupid. Yeah, well, I, I, I have got, I haven't even got the background to know whether or not I'm laughing at that ironically or just actually. Anyway, um, this week's episode, we're looking at superheroes. This is kind of a picking up a thread that I, I believe we we kind of touched on a bit during the geek culture episode during the summer, talking about the kinds of things that arouse um, basically you know gushes of irrational love from uh, from fanboys like myself. Um, superheroes is one of those things. I don't have as much systematic background in it, though. I love the idea of superheroes. I've watched lots and lots of superhero movies. Um, I read lots of my friends' comic books back when, uh, you know, back when I was a young teenager. Uh, was not permitted to buy them myself, um, but have ever since been have had a fondness for them. Uh, what about you, Michael? I don't have as much background as some people. I've I've never really read comic books at all. Every three months or so, I swear, I'm going to order a Spider-Man or X-Men anthology. And I really keep wanting to read that whole Marvel Civil War plot from a few years ago. Actually, I think mm-hmm. that plot is five years old now. And I've been saying for five years I was going to order an <laughs> omnibus and read it. But that hasn't happened. Um, uh, but I've seen most of the superhero movies, the ones with decent reputations from the past decade or so. I've seen the Spider-Man movies, which I love. Uh, I saw the reboot of Batman, the X-Men trilogy. And I grew up playing the Marvel superhero games for the Super Nintendo, so I am familiar with at least some of the mythology, even if I lack the devotion you would get from spending hours in your basement memorizing Submariner comics. <laughs> all, all the uh, all the hardcore Submariner fans will appreciate that shout-out, I'm sure. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> No, nothing wrong at all. Uh, he's way better than Aquaman. Uh, what about you, Nathan? Well, I was also a Marvel devotee rather than DC. Uh, I actually collected them uh, fairly regularly uh, through junior high and part of high school. Uh, about the time I started driving and I had to pay for gas, I stopped buying comic books. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I collected Captain America, read some Spider-Man, some X-Men, all those sorts of things. Uh, I was around for all three of the Infinity Gauntlet series, if anyone was reading comic books back in the late 80s and early 90s and remembers those. Uh, But, you know, that's really where I became familiar with comic book mythology. Hmm. David, how about you? um, Well, I mean, like I said, I'm not as deep into it um, as, um, as my enthusiasm might indicate. Uh, I did, however, sit down and watch pretty much the entire run of the Justice League and uh, Justice League Unlimited uh, cartoon that was on Cartoon Network. Uh, uh, well, in recent years, uh, sat down and basically watched like a hundred bazillion D episodes <laughs> in a row. 
So, um, David, are you going yeah. to bat for DC? Nathan and I just expressed preference for the Marvel characters. Are you? Uh, are, are you? Are you going to be our DC representative? Well, I think we're going to have to camp a good bit on DC anyway, just because Superman's first, you know. Um, and I think every, I think we could we could pretty pretty easily argue that just about everything after Superman is in some way a response to Superman. Um, yeah, but before we get into that, um, um, I guess before before we really talk about superheroes, we need to know a bit about pre-modern models of heroism. Um, just to know where where are where do we get our heroes? Um, what do our, and what do our heroes look like? Um, obviously, a thousand years ago, heroes did not run around in brightly colored tights. <laughs> um, so I think I'm going to dump this. What on about your Robin Hood, state. David? Uh, oh, oh, don't get him started, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Men in tight, tight tights. <laughs> yeah, um, Nathan, let's 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 throw this one at you real quick. Um, Obviously, you can't be exhaustive, so you know, just kind of try try to tag the important bases: ancient, classical, medieval, Greek, Sumerian. You know, whatever you got. Pre-model. Oh, sure, that's all. <laughs> well, I mean, just, one of just the things- two thousand years of human history, please. Sure, sure. I mean, one of the things that you can definitely say about pre-modern heroism uh, is that the hero is always a function of a larger metaphysics. So, in other words, when you look at uh, someone like Marduk, who's actually the chief of the Babylonian gods, he actually functions. Uh, in the same way that a Greek hero figure might. In other words, he faces down the forces of chaos, he defeats them, and as a reward, he is elevated to the chief of the Babylonian pantheon. Uh, When you get over to Greek antiquity, uh, instead of that, what you have is a series of families of gods who are at war with each other and who displace each other, and who culminate really in heroes who are half god and half mortal. So you start to approach a little bit more closely the world of normal people uh, with folks like Achilles, with folks like Perseus, uh, mm-hmm. with folks who have divine parentage and human parentage. Hercules. That, yes, Hercules, precisely. Uh, and I'm, I'm doing this entirely too fast, but as you move forward into the Roman period, uh, it becomes a lot more closely tied with imperial families it becomes a lot more closely tied with national mythology you have a lot more of a sense that there is a romanitas a roman identity to which Mm -hmm. heroism is connected now by the time you get into the christian era you have another stream joining in here uh with figures like samson like david these people who have normal human bodies unlike the classical heroes from these other places uh but who are infused with a supernatural power, a supernatural awareness, sometimes a supernatural wisdom. And I want to dwell for a second on that word supernatural. It often gets misused, I think, in modern discourse to mean anything that is odd. In other words, if someone uh, flies about, that must be supernatural. Angels must be supernatural. God must be supernatural. For the Hebrews and for the early Christians, and by early I mean the first 1,200 years or so, supernatural (laughs) means that someone has a certain nature but because of a gift of divine grace rises above that nature so in other words samson Mm. is supernatural in his strength he has a normal human body but god grants him this strength beyond the human capacity the one being who cannot be supernatural in the hebrew tradition is god uh, because god is by nature infinite 
anyway, that's my little soapbox. To get back to <laughs> this merging of streams, uh, when you get into medieval heroism, again, you have normal human bodies who are imbued with supernatural abilities. You have Sir Gowan uh, from Mort d'Artur, who, when the sun rises, becomes three times as mighty as a mortal man. Uh, you have all sorts of oddities, but you still have a basic human nature at the core of them. And this is really where the medieval sort of levels out into the Renaissance and into the Enlightenment, and you really start to move towards more of a novelistic character uh, who is a normal person, but whose moral sense or some other moral virtue becomes greater than, nor greater than normal, maybe not even supernatural. And really, that's kind of where superheroes later on we'll talk about start to return to those ancient roots uh because they have bodies that are not human bodies but i'll sort of leave off there david i mean is there any gaps that i'm leaving that you want me to fill in or michael do you want to fill in anything that i've left yeah you don't want to forget the epic of gilgamesh <clears throat> certainly certainly gilgamesh is one of those odd creatures probably more like a greek hero than like a god uh but certainly is capable of superhuman uh, feats, you know, defeating the monster Humbaba, uh, journeying into the depths to find the plant of immortal life, all those sorts of things. Mm. And you left out Beowulf, but I can forgive you that. Well, Beowulf, I think, fits into that idea that, you know, he has, <laughs> as far as I can tell, human nature, right? Uh, mm. But, you know, the poem seems to indicate that God sent him and God empowers him uh, to be Aglaka to the Aglakon, right? You know, to be mm -hmm. adversary to the demonic adversaries. I yeah, mean, is, is that a fair take, David? I mean, you're our Beowulf expert here. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally think, you know, he's, he's a big, he's a big, strong guy, but the poems overlay of, of theology, which is mostly taking place in the narrator and in King Hrothgar's sermons and such. Um, Okay, he King Hrothgar seems to be able to, to see that Beowulf is a bit more than a man, that his sure, that his, sure. his strength is not just his own, and that he's got definitely a purpose. He was meant right, to but be, in the way that Samson is a bit more than a man, rather than the right. way that Hercules is a bit more than a man. Right, he's meant to be an enemy of the enemies, as you say. Right, right. Oh yeah, I should have translated that into modern English. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, um, Michael. Uh, what happens to our heroes in, uh, I guess, what we would call modern Western lit? I uh, just realized I answered this question wrong because I read it as you asking about cowboy novels. So I have several <laughs> paragraphs here about cowboy novels that fit in, I think, fairly well. Um, and we can, we can add a few things to that uh, afterwards. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I yeah, uh, I'm gonna talk about I'm gonna talk about cowboys, and uh, we can connect that to the superheroes. And if you guys want to add anything about the modern twentieth uh, twentieth century Western culture hero, I will be happy to uh, talk. Uh, I have, and and I really do think this applies. I, I really do think that the superhero comes to large degree from the Western novel, which is which is why I didn't think it was a ridiculous question. 
So I'm going to start. I, I haven't read a whole lot of those dime store westerns, but I'm going to start with James Fenimore Cooper and the other uh, early pioneer novelists. Uh, Cooper's most famous novels revolve around this fellow Natty Bumpo, which I think is actually the stupidest name he possibly could have come up with. But Bumpo is really the archetype of the American pioneer, which would become the archetype for the American cowboy, which I would argue will become the archetype for the American superhero. So Natty is separated from white society. He spends most of his time with his Indian chief. Um, I can't pronounce the name. It's something along the lines of Chingachgook. Um, yes, but he goes through <laughs> pains in, in The Last of the Mohicans to mention, he does this over and over again, that he's a white man with no crossed blood. No crossed blood. He's totally white. He doesn't have any Indian in, any, any Indian in him. Uh, so he's really apart from any and all society, which I think is, is a major trope in both cowboy literature and in superhero stories. So uh, Cooper's novels are pretty much unconflicted in their glorification of Natty Bumpo. In, in the first novel, The Pioneers, you get this image of Bumpo as set off against the white society in which he attempts to live. Eventually, all his Indian friends die off or they assimilate into white society, and Natty disappears into the sunset, and that's a familiar image to anyone who watches westerns. Um, once the cowboy becomes the national mythic figure in the later half of the 19th century, he ends up looking an awful lot like Natty Bumpo, at least at first. Um, this guy, Henry Nash Smith, wrote a book called Virgin Land, which is kind of the standard text on this. He claims that the early literary cowboys are mostly symbols of anarchic freedom, which, are, which is a little wilder than Natty, but it's kind of on the same spectrum. And what you're getting, I think, is the country is becoming more and more civilized, and at the same time, the heroes are becoming more and more uncivilized. They're struggling to hold on to what little frontier is left. And with a, with a character like Kit Carson, who was, of course, a real person as well as a character, you get this sort of militant nationalism mixed into the whole deal because Carson fights in the Mexican-American War. So I think these characters sound an awful lot like Superman, who's a stranger in American society, and yet, nevertheless, he fights for truth, justice in the American way. And a lot of those characters also have upper class or aristocratic backgrounds that they have to abandon in order to be frontiersmen. So again, you get that echo with Superman as well. Wasn't he a king on his home planet? Uh, well, he wasn't really anything because he was an infant when he got here. But he was the child of the king or something. A anyway, yeah. I, I know that at least right. in, in one of those mythologies. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's so many different you're threads with. in Superman. <laughs> and Bruce Wayne as well. Bruce Wayne is, is an aristocrat who has to, to at least temporarily abandon that to fight crime. So I think I think you are seeing them um, as descendants of those cowboys. Now, what's interesting is that cowboys were viewed with some scorn, some amount of scorn, until Buffalo Bill became a pop culture icon in the 1880s. Um, with the cowboy, you get this guy who's violent and who's not afraid to kill if he has to, but at the same time, he's got this odd sort of virtue. Um, and I'll quote Henry Nash Smith. He, he was generous, brave, and scrupulously honest with a strange paradoxical code of personal honor in vindication of which he will obtrude his life as though it were but a toy. Um, with the cowboys, then, you're really looking at something closer to the anti-hero, someone like Philip Marlowe from Raymond Chandler's mm -hmm. novels, or Batman. You, you know, I mean, that's a description of Batman, uh, essentially. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, we'll we'll get to Batman a bit later. Um, but I, I, yeah, I I, I did want to talk about one other thing in connection to this, David. Okay. I know I've, I'm I'm cool. talking a long time about something you didn't actually intend me to talk about. 
No, th- th- this is this this actually fits in better than you knew. Yeah, well, no, I I did know it fit in pretty well. I just didn't, I didn't realize <laughs> you didn't know that. <laughs> um, what happens in Western films in the later half of the twentieth century? So, um, if if you watch if you watch early westerns, something starring John Wayne or Gary Cooper or whoever. You you think of that sturdy, valorous hero fighting guys in black hats or savage Indians. I, either way, someone who's rather unambiguously evil and who, who does, we feel deserves to be shot. Um, there's a few exceptions to that, even in the early Westerns. You think of High Noon, which is my favorite Western, actually. That's about a guy who doesn't want to fight, even though the bad guys are still pretty unambiguously evil. And then John Wayne in The Searchers actually wants mm-hmm. to kill the Natalie Wood character because she's been defiled by Indians. That seems pretty dark to modern audiences. I think it seemed much more ju- must have seemed much more justifiable in 1956. And But in the 70s, you really start to get a deconstruction of the the Western mythos. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of a, a film from 1971, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It's a Robert Altman film and it takes the, uh, the whole cowboy mythos and it, it totally deconstructs it. So you get McCabe. He's played by Warren Beatty and he wanders into this little town in the wild West and he, he basically takes over it and he opens up a brothel and he, he makes a whole lot of money mining and he ends up making his investors kind of angry. They want to buy him out and he won't let them. So they send some hitmen to kill him, and he's really afraid of being shot. And in the end, he ends up killing two of them by shooting them in the back, which is a really clear violation of the cowboy code of honor, right? So it's clear mm-hmm. it's clear how that movie complicates the cowboy myth, and it, it really continued from there. Um, so you, you get really bizarre westerns, like Jim Jaramusch has this completely unwatchable piece of garbage called Dead Man. Uh, or you get a much <laughs> a much better movie, um, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, and, and that's Eastwood complicating his own legacy. So I, I've, I've talked for a long time about cowboys now, but I think it's pretty clear how this relates to the superhero genre because that has a pretty similar progression. You move from the okay. outsider hero who's nevertheless a, a, unambiguously good to the outsider hero who you're really not sure if you want saving your life or not because he might demand something from you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's an arc that we're going to be tracing, yeah, in the, in in this parallel genre. Um, it 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 is good that you brought up cowboys, even if even if inadvertently, um, because superheroes grew out of uh, grew out of pulp literature. Well, and, and pop, I really think uh, cow- cowboys and detectives are the the kind of two great American heroes, and we've we've talked so much mm-hmm. about detectives and the detective fiction one. But if you if you look at the detective stuff, they're they're undergoing a very similar progression as well, with the with mm-hmm. the noir complicating them. Well, and Batman originally aired in a comic called Detective Stories. Yeah, that's that's so, true. That's true. And Batman is uh, is most notable, right, for his kind of super intelligence. Although we'll talk about that, I'm sure later. Yeah. Um, now, I'm I'm gonna ramble just a little bit. Um, <gasps> I know me ramble gasp. <laughs> um, now, uh, you know, my, Michael, you you brought up the cowboys, and you know what we have going into the early 20th century is this kind of burgeoning uh, market for for yellow literature, cheap cheap disposable uh, stories, often you know. Uh, full full of illustrations on all kind of adventurous and sometimes quite lurid topics. Um, crime was something that was very interesting. Also, science fiction was was hugely interesting. Um, uh, cowboys, you know, the the western was a big part of that, and as you say, the 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 detective as well. 
Um, and then in uh, around about the 30s, we have a couple of uh, of uh, young, young Jewish men. Uh, let's see, Siegel and uh, and Schuster, who get together and they've invented a character and they've given him a name which they've heard before uh, from many many different contexts, which is the name of Superman. But uh, I don't think most people realize this, but before Superman uh, debuted as a superhero in 1938, uh, he had previously, about five years previously, uh, been uh, that that name. They'd also used that name as uh, uh, the title of the bald-headed supervillain <laughs> in uh, a little one-off that they did called uh, The Reign of the Superman. Um so the, the the superhero is is uh, a logical extension of uh, the kind of disposable literature that was being read at the time. And when I say disposable, I mean I mean that literally. It was very very cheap, and it wasn't meant to be stuff that was read forever. It was churned out. Um, you know, lots lots of stories churned out under short deadlines, for which their authors got paid almost nothing. Uh, because and Siegel and Schuster lost the rights to Superman, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, they 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 lost the rights to him and uh in, in fact uh spent years and years and years in the courts trying to get something out of the legacy of of uh the hero they invented. Um which is incredibly sad. Uh if you're interested in such things, I recommend a book that was given to me by my friend Eugene Cuevas. It's called Men of Tomorrow: Geeks, Gangsters and the Birth of the Comic Book by a fellow named Gerard Jones that really sets up the context that uh, that Superman and really all of the, all of the superheroes came out of. And it's a fusion of this kind of speculative science fiction alongside of the, uh, the detectives, right? Um, those, put those two, two things together and you end up with science fiction crime fighting, which Superman is a short step from that. Um, well, and that is itself a loaded name. I already said that that uh, Siegel and Schuster didn't coin the term. Um, what kind of connotations did that have, uh, Nate? Well, there's about 17 layers to that, and I'm going to hit about three of them. Uh, <laughs> first of all, you know the term Superman. A lot of people try to find that term somewhere in the literature of Friedrich Nietzsche. What you actually find there is this concept of the Ubermensch. Uh, and you know, Uber is related to the Greek prefix hyper. Uh, it means overcoming, surpassing something like that. And Mensch tends to have, you know, more of a connotation of sort of the everyday dude. All right. Mm. So, you know, for Nietzsche, this is not necessarily someone with the ability to freeze Lake Michigan by breathing on it or anything like that. Uh, so much as someone who takes a step beyond what he calls slave morality and starts to create values rather than simply inheriting them. And I, you know, I, the, if I can interrupt you for just a second, Nathan, go ahead. I think actually a good translation of that in, in other philosophical literature is if you look at Confucius's concept of the gentleman. I, I ah, think they're okay. really talking about something very similar. So, so something like an aristocrat, then? No, um, the gen uh, gentleman is a bad translation of Confucius as well. Oh, okay. If you, <laughs> if you put those together, you, they're really talking about the same thing, which is so someone with extraordinary uh, 
personal virtue, although you know, and virtue is a is a word that is related to the to the Latin word for masculinity as well. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. It's a, as Machiavelli uses it then. Y- yeah, Machiavelli, Emerson, Nietzsche, and I I really think Confucius are all kind of talking about similar things. All right. So at any rate, you know, this is a concept of someone, as Michael said, with a an extraordinarily strong sense of self. Is that a fair thing to say, Michael? Yes. All right, all right. Uh, and who, you know, basically, as I said, rises above uh, centuries of slave morality, which is one of Nietzsche's code terms for the Platonic Christian tradition uh, that would hold that the meek are blessed and shall inherit the earth. Nietzsche wants to return to what he spends his life reading and teaching, namely the classical sense of heroism. And, you know, David, I think this is where there's an interesting connection to Superman, because although the DC Comics hero turns out to be sort of the ultimate Boy Scout, uh, on the other hand, there's also the sense that he's also a return to this as Michael said, outsider hero, but so far outside that he starts to become something more like a Hercules. Uh, So at any rate, you know, the idea of the overman who chooses to support what amounts to traditional American values, uh, you know, is something that is really, as as far as I can tell, David, you know, something uniquely American uh, and that, you know, really gives birth to the genre that we think of as the superhero. It's this confluence of the cowboy story, the detective story, the Greek god, the Nietzschean Ubermensch, all of these things flowing together, becoming two-dimensional, and showing up in pulp literature. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can definitely uh, see that the uh, Siegel and Schuster knew about um, – when they they'd use the term Superman earlier to to designate uh, a a villain a bald villain incidentally Lex Luthor like who is given amazing powers of mind and body no one can kill him and he can he can basically dominate the wills of others and he's just he and he's going to wipe out the world because he thinks it's all nonsense. Right. And, well, and that's, uh, that's one of the very few good things I can say about that awful, awful movie, Superman Returns. Oh, what a uh, terrible is, movie. Is that Kevin Spacey actually has some fun with Lex Luthor, uh, which, of course, you know, the show Smallville had not been doing for years prior to that. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and although I, I enjoyed Smallville for about five seasons, I haven't watched it since. Uh, but, you know, one of the things about that movie that I thought was interesting is that one of the first long speeches that Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor gives is how he imagines himself as a latter-day Prometheus. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, apparently Siegel and Schuster beat, uh, yeah, yeah, beat Superman, uh, uh, to uh, beat that movie to, to, to the punch sure. even before they'd invented Superman. Uh, and you had, you also had the complication of, uh, the, the tribe, uh, or the, the trial of, uh, Leopold and Loeb, um, and I guess that's how you say that that guy's last name. In the twenties, the guy that uh, the two guys that killed the guy uh, killed um, an acquaintance of theirs just because they could, and Clarence Darrow defended them and basically said they just got all this from Nietzsche. Well, and also um, Crime and Punishment fe- features. I'm not sure if Dostoevsky ever read Nietzsche, but Crime and Punishment 
features a protagonist who clearly sees himself as a Nietzschean uh, Ubermensch above the uh, above the law and kind of suffers for it. Sure. Right. So uh, it, also, I, I, there's a rather famous group in the 1930s who were utilizing the concept of the <laughs> Ubermensch for rather nefarious purposes. Uh, do, do you think that that Superman, who's 180 degrees from what the Nazis were attempting to do with with a very similar word, uh, do you think that's a, any kind of explicit critique of the Nazis? I think it'd be very hard to avoid that, particularly given that Siegel and Schuster were in fact Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, 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 yeah, I mean, the, the, those things, those things seem to fit together and they, and they were both certainly, uh, certainly interested in the notion of what, what should the most powerful person in the world do? We know what mm. we're afraid of him okay. doing. What should he do? Well, I guess we, we can't talk about the man of steel without leaving out his counterpart, the Cape Crusader who debuted, uh, only a year later in 1939, um, namely Batman. Uh, we've said already he he, uh, he debuted in a, a comic called Detective Stories, which which already kind of gives us a notion of what his spin on things is. Um, what sort of hero is he? Is he is, is he a superhero, Michael? Well, certainly not in the way that we would call Superman super. Batman has no superpowers as such, although depending on your version. He's got really intense martial arts training, and he's a smart guy, but what he really has is a great deal of money and free time and a grudge against <laughs> all criminals everywhere. So uh, <laughs> he he's actually probably closer to the, the Nietzschean Ubermensch than... Uh, than, than, than Superman is, because he's... Yeah, there's this, definitely some Raskolnikov to him. Yeah, he, he's kind of surpassed regular humanity through his own effort. Um, from the beginning, though, Batman seems to have been a much darker character than Superman. He has very clear and evident faults, and he doesn't always do the right thing. Um, it's also, I think, more believable when people want to do dark things with Batman than with Superman. Frank Miller had that <laughs> Dark Knight series a few decades ago, and it was really well-received, especially in contrast to the similar Superman plotline from the same era, the one where Superman dies. I remember even at the time, everybody talking about how terrible those th those books were. Um, <laughs> not all Batman properties have been dark. Of course, you you got the kind of campy Adam West TV series, or the two Joel Schumacher movies from the '90s that everybody hates. But Batman, I think, <laughs> lends himself very well to darker plotlines which is why the, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies have been so artistically and commercially successful. So Batman is a counterpart not only because he's not super, <laughs> but because he's he's really kind of Superman's dark side, or he's the dark side of superheroes in general. He's certainly mm -hmm. the prototype for all the darker, edgier superheroes that would come later, the Spawns and the Punishers and, and Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider with a D, not the... Not the PBS series about the uh, about, about about the ghost who helps the uh, multi-ethnic kids in New York City solve mysteries. I'm really yeah, not I, familiar with that. Are yeah, you guys both I, too old for I that? Get, no, I get the reference. All I right. get the reference. Yeah. Rally J. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, B Batman does refer to Superman as uh, as the Boy Scout um, because he's the one who. Um, wants to do everything uh, as it ought to be done. Uh, 
You're not saying it right, David. You have to, uh... He's the Boy Scout. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't, sorry. I, I, I can't do the Christian Bale growl. Oh, I, good I for got, you. I haven't got that in me. Um... Now, Can you do the, Michael Keaton? <laughs> no. I might, yeah, maybe I'll do Val Kilmer. Um, All right. George Clooney. Yeah, <laughs> oh, heavens. Um, or Adam West. Um, well, I mean, Superman, you know, he's he's pretty much got all the power. Um, Batman's a man with lots of lots of time and lots of money. Um uh, let's see any other kind of supermodels we want to we want to <laughs> throw out there, but I guess those are Kate Moss. those are <laughs> well. The, the, I guess those are the main two. Um, the the super by dint of supreme of your own supreme effort versus super by dint of your amazing abilities. Um, well, also, you should you should add in the and this was largely a Marvel invention, I believe. Cursed with superpowers, the the X Men are yeah. a, a good example. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, the 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 pariah superhero, the the hero that dare not speak his name. Um, that might be something a little different. Uh, well, that's Batman certainly has that. Well, which of uh, which models of superheroes, uh, you know, is your personal favorite? What about you, Nathan? Well, I mean, between Batman and Superman, frankly, I enjoy Superman stories better, uh, simply because they have to work so hard to make a compelling story. You know, this is a guy who is, in, I, let, let, let me finish, Michael, let me finish. Uh, you know, this is a guy who can't be harmed by conventional weapons. Uh, there has to be some kind of ingenuity on Lex Luthor's part ever to get to the guy. So, I mean, what you get in those is sometimes unbelievable, but always amusing plot lines of how someone's going to try to get one over on Superman with Batman. You know, he is, largely undetected until he drops down on the bad guys out of the darkness you know basically how it's going to wrap up you know there's going to be a climactic <laughs> fight where batman nearly dies but doesn't uh and you know for me, for my money i'd rather watch someone try to get one over on superman michael i i find superman just excruciatingly boring i i, I find the morally perfect hero <laughs> boring i don't like cooper's novels and i don't like i don't like superman i do like traditional westerns but in most of them you've at least got an anti-hero i i tend to like the stuff that complicates the myth although i feel guilty about that it, it feels like i've kind of sacrificed something important about being human and preferring the anti-hero to the hero but uh but that that's uh that's me how well, about you uh, david ah cast the deciding vote for us I've always wanted to be Batman, but I'm a bit of a coward, so I, I'm actually <laughs> going to uh, go outside of the the realm that we're in. And uh, uh, you're not I allowed to I, say Beowulf, David. No, I know. I, I like I like I like Marvels um, superheroes. I like uh, I like the X Men uh, a lot. Well, certainly. Um, well, I if, mean, I, if I had to do what? No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, if I have to choose a superpower, it's going to be Wolverines. Um, really? Because oh yeah, because I'm such a coward. I want to be. I want to know. I want to be able to know that when, you know, when I get smacked by a tank, I'm going to heal. <laughs> Nightcrawler's my favorite X-Man. 
Yeah, bamfing around. Yeah, I, I always like Nightcrawler. Now, do you, do you like the lighthearted comic book Nightcrawler or the gothic movie Nightcrawler? I thought Alan, uh, what's his bucket, did a, a really great job in the movie, the second X-Men movie, which is, for my money, the best the best of the Marvel um, superhero movies. I, I really liked his portrayal. I, I, I thought he... I, I thought he didn't make him too angsty. I thought he made him believable. I prefer that one to the goofy, bouncing around comic book. All right, all right, because I mean, there's a distinction there. I think that needs to be made. Now, when I was <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, Gambit was the one everybody put their money on. No, uh, no pun intended. But I never, I never really got the big deal about Gambit. Oh, it's 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 the big long trench coat, you know, and the fact that his. You know, other than throwing, you know, antimatter playing cards, his other major trait is that he's with Rogue. I was going to say, I, I figured most of it was he got to make it with Rogue. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. <laughs> um, oh, lordy. Now let's get, I, I guess we got to get serious again. Um, in most superhero stories, there's uh, there's kind of a balance between their heroic identity and their cover identity. Um, you know, you've got Clark Kent, who is Superman's cover. Way and, to spoil it, David. I know. <laughs> uh, you know, Batman, he goes out in public as Bruce Wayne. Um, you know, Batman's the identity that he, that Bruce Wayne assumes to fight crime. Um, you know, Spider-Man and Peter, Peter Parker. Um, now, Gilgamesh and Beowulf didn't, feel like they had to hide their identity so why do our superheroes hide michael well the usual reason is that the heroes want to protect their loved ones so if you think about spider-man when the bad guys in the movies anyway inevitably figure out that peter parker is spider-man the first thing they do is they kidnap mary jane so her life is in danger just by associating with them and the fewer people who know he's spider-man the better off um she's gonna be and then another reason you sometimes hear, and you get this especially in the Pixar movie The Incredibles, is that superheroes create an enormous amount of chaos when they're fighting crime. And if people were aware of their secret identities, their gratitude for being saved would be outstripped by their angry, anger at property damage. Um, <laughs> but the artistic reason for, for secret identities is that it further alienates the superhero. And, it, you know, nowadays we like our superheroes alienated. So Clark can't can't tell anyone that he's Superman, not even the woman he loves, And I mean, until he does tell her. But So he has this bizarre, <laughs> unexplainable behavior. Like, you know, he runs away whenever there's trouble. And he, he can't explain that to anyone, so everybody just thinks he's a coward and kind of lame. <laughs> so that puts yeah. the superheroes even more on the outside of society. I think it's significant that the two properties that immediately come to mind that don't bother with secret identities are Iron Man and X-Men. Because in the case of the X-Men, they're already so alienated from society on account of being mutants that they really wouldn't be a point <laughs> in alienating them further. And then Tony Stark, on the other hand, is basically the king of the world. And he, yeah. you know, that, that, that property largely lacks the alienation angle. It, it has a, a much more standard... Um, standard progression of sin and redemption. Tony Stark's a uh -huh. terrible human being. He he gets humbled and he ends up being a less of a terrible human being anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, it, it it is kind of funny that 
that the whole secret identity thing was a convention even before the superhero. I mean, you have people like the Scarlet Pimpernel um, or Zorro. Zorro. Yeah, Zorro, for that matter, um, you know, who who are assuming uh, secret identities mainly for Spider-Man reasons. Um, but also for Batman reasons, um, no one's no one's going to be scared. Oh no, Bruce Wayne's after you. <laughs> but he's going to sue you. The, well, okay, he'll okay, sue you yeah, in England. I'm going to buy your house and throw you out of it. Um, but the Batman is scary. You know, the Fox is scary. Right. Uh, you don't know who he is. He's a man of mystery. Um, Wait, who is the any- Fox? Zorro. That's what Zorro means. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah no, nobody's going to be afraid of the effete aristocrat Don Diego de la Vega. For I don't know, that name sounds pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, maybe gets, it just translates well. Well, he gets the coward name too because he runs away from danger. But then, Dor- but then right. Zorro shows up. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, uh, you know, you mentioned Michael. You mentioned the Incredibles and the notion of the relationships of of supers and ordinary citizens sometimes being uneasy and tense. Um. And this is this is something that uh, it seems like an obsession recently. I, I, I don't think I've seen a comic book movie of late that did not in some way deal with with this at some level. Um, not just not just the Incredibles, but also I mean, and and probably even more strongly Alan Moore's Watchmen, uh, mm-hmm. which you know. Sam Mulberry asked for us to talk about Watchmen, so this is the point where we do that. And so what Sam Mulberry asks for, Sam Mulberry gets. <laughs> That's our yes, policy on the Christian Humanist podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk about Watchmen. What's uh, what's what's the deal with that? I I did not I, I have not read the comic, um, but you said that you had Nathan. So yeah, I, I've actually not seen the movie yet. So David, you might be able to chime in with that, or Michael, if you've seen the movie. But nope. in the comic book Watchmen. Uh, and I still can't call it a graphic novel. It, it's I promise it's not snobbery. It's just my own. I'm totally with you. Imagination. But I refuse to um, say I refuse to say administrative assistant for the same reason. Let's take back <laughs> those words. Let's empower secretaries to read comic books. The comic book <laughs> is a noble thing. At any rate, uh, <laughs> in the Watchmen, which is a comic book that arises out in the 1980s, uh, what you got is a plot line in which superheroes are being hunted down and murdered brutally uh and as the plot line develops you really do start to get a lot of the nietzschean elements coming out uh two characters come to mind and and david i'm just gonna have to confess i've forgotten their names so help me out if you can from the movie but the the nuclear blue guy (laughs) dr manhattan dr manhattan thank you Mm -hmm. uh you know he actually becomes intellectually superhuman in the way that everybody else's bodies become superhuman uh, Mm -hmm. so that he actually starts to experience time simultaneously instead of sequentially. Uh, He starts to think of himself as God because in that universe he effectively is. Now, the person who has been murdering supers uh, is not Dr. Manhattan, but it's actually Ozymandias who has a wonderful supervillain name. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he basically comes to think along with is it jester is that the other is that another character name the comedian the comedian pardon me uh, are you thinking about the cigar chomping soldier yeah, yeah, fortune guy yeah right okay but at any rate all three of these characters and i'm sorry guys i should have looked that more carefully before we recorded but i didn't 
all three <laughs> of these characters really start to exhibit uh, some of the moral and intellectual side to this superhumanity. Uh, one of them starts to become a god. One of them starts to become super moral. And one of them starts to resent the fact that he has to hide all of these things and therefore starts murdering supers in order to advance designs that I won't give away as a spoiler. All right. Uh, now, the, the the idea here, I mean, I think is a natural outgrowth. I, I, I know usually I am the Christian humanist Pollyanna, but in this case, <laughs> I think that this is, you know, the perfect deconstruction of the superhero myth because these characters, it's not that they have this moment where they decide, I am going to start becoming amoral. It's simply that the existence of the superhuman drives them to inhuman places. And I think that's really what fascinates me the most about Alan Moore's comic book, The Watchmen, is that he is willing, and I think able, uh, to explore the moral dimension of this superhumanity uh, in a way, frankly, that a lot of comic books don't. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, what what fascinates me, and I'm going to kick it over to Michael here in a second, is that what Alan Moore is deeply troubled about, this sort of Nietzschean element, is what, as far as I can tell, The Incredibles, the Disney Pixar movie, revels in. I mean, you know, the there's these constant speeches about how we're super and we ought to be able to live super. If, and if, the main, no, if everyone's special, no one's special. Yes, yes. And I mean, the, and you know, the main bad guy in the movie, his big super duper plan to do evil in the world is to democratize power. <laughs> and, you know, when I was watching this for the first time, I mean, I was just, it, it really was just blowing my mind. I'm thinking, okay, this is the most Nietzschean superhero story I've ever seen. Now, uh, Michael and Randy, is also, to, to get even more terrifying, say he I'm, is also killing off superheroes. You know, so it's not just about making the not superhero people. Ever heard of the Reign of Terror? <laughs> Do I? Well, I, I know, I know. I'm just saying. Anyway, Michael, I mean, I, I have to be missing something about the Incredibles. Enlighten me here, man. Oh no, I think you've got it right. I, I think you're just wrong to be uh, horrified by it. <laughs> See, this is where my democratic impulse comes out. No, I'm an elitist, <laughs> man. If if there were superheroes, why should they have to hide it? Especially if they're using it to do good. That 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 that's a uh, you're you're right to call it Nietzsche, and I'm I'm also right to call it Randian. Although I hate Ayn Rand to the degree that I should uh I should try to think of it as Nietzsche. And you've got that existential nightmare at the beginning of the movie where someone who is clearly superior is is literally forced into a box. That terrible little car, Mister Incredible has to drive in his gray uh office and in his sad little suburban home and, and uh the, the movie the movie is is literally about surpassing um social expectations and it, it did kind of come out of nowhere it seems like a very un-disney mm. um sentiment that not everybody is special but uh well, oh sure sure well, but, I, I uh, god bless brad bird and pixar yeah i, I, didn't I, see uh, I, think I saw harrison movie. i saw harrison bergeron that's what I saw in The Incredibles. Is that that Vonnegut story where they have to yeah. they blast white noise into the cat's uh, ears? Where ba basically everyone who is above average in every way has to take on basically a, a life handicap in order to reduce them down to the average. Oh, sure. And I've said before that that is Vonnegut's most ham-fistedly Nietzschean story. 
<laughs> all right, we'll all be the same, Nathan. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so apparently I am still the Democratic Pollyanna, <laughs> which is weird because I think of you as the Ubermensch of this podcast. <laughs> well, certainly, if we lop off uh, the if we lop off that particular tallest poppy's head, then uh, we'll we'll look much taller. Anyway, although you know, uh, I'm literally the tallest. That is true. <laughs> A little yeah. trivia for those of you at home. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like The Incredibles, but that's mostly because I think it's uh, – for for me, the, 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 the moment that in The Incredibles that's the most uh, – the most affecting is when Bob Parr is having to sit in an office and being berated by – uh, isn't Cassini. that it's Wallace? Shawn. Yeah, but by the, the yeah by Wallace Shawn, the inconceivable guy, being berated <laughs> by him while he can see out the window that a man is being mugged and beaten, and he can't do anything about it. He has to just sit there while Wallace Shawn berates him for basically providing customer service. And you know that. But, I mean, that's the, know, that's the whole other point of the movie, which is. Being it's special not... means having an extra obligation as well, which is, I think, what keeps it from being narrowly Randian or even nar- narrowly Nietzschean, and it, it makes it into something much more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Peter Parker's S- Uncle Ben? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what keeps it from leaving a bad taste Stan in Lee, my mouth. but same vibe, David. Yeah. <laughs> but but to, to be special, to be to be superior means to have superior responsibility. All right, so more X-Men, less Magneto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I and you know, like I said, I I didn't say, but I'm about to say, I think it's a well-made movie. I think it's good storytelling. But what really blew my mind the first time I saw it was the fact that it was this sort of saccharine Disney happy family, everyone gets together and loves each other story on one level, and then on another level it is this you know, Kurt Vonnegut, Friedrich Nietzsche, Rise of the Superman story. It is it is Pixar, which again is is distinct from Disney, especially in two thousand four. Well, sure, sure. It is it is Pixar exploiting and subverting the Disney family mythos. <laughs> and it, it explains Dis- if you look at a kind of similar Disney movie from the same era, uh, Meet the Robinsons. Which yeah. is has has a lot of the same tone. You you can see why every Pixar movie is better than every Disney movie since I don't know, Lion King. And this is coming from the mouth of someone who adores Disney. I am looking at my uh Chippendales Rescue Rangers uh stuffed animals right now. <laughs> Which I yeah, keep this in is my not office. coming from a Disney hater. No, I love um, Disney. I lo- but Pixar is what Disney used to be. We'll have to do an episode on uh cartoons sometime and we'll talk about this in more detail (laughs) you get to helm that one well i think that's about all we have time for today um and we'll we'll leave uh we'll leave this particular episode uh with with kind of a cliffhanger in mid-battle between uh you know the people who think the incredibles has something noble and liberating to say and you know those who think it's nietzschean is this the end of the Christian Humanist Podcast? <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> same Christian uh, this time. Same Christian.
Christian humanist chat. Um, yeah. Too many jellicers. I just can't keep up with these guys. Yeah, what is going on next week? Is it? It's it's your turn, Nathan, right? It is indeed. Next week we are going to do something similar to superheroes. We're going to do kings. Huzzah! Uh, we're going to start with Agamemnon, and we're going to work our way all the way up to Elvis Presley and Richard Petty. And somewhere <laughs> in between there, we'll talk about what it might mean to be a king. Mm, well, it's good to be the king. I know that. I just um, can't wait to be king. <laughs> we could keep this on indefinitely. Um, all right. Well, uh, that is it, dear listeners. Um, that's it for this week, anyhow. Um, if you want to send us any uh, any feedback on this episode, and uh, you know, point out to us some some superheroes that we de- desperately should have mentioned but didn't. There are so or, many. Yes, or uh, details that that we missed that uh, well shouldn't have. Um, also, keep in mind that none of us are uh, declaring ourselves to be experts. But uh, you can send email to uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also check out uh, what's on our blog at uh, www.christianhumanist.org slash chb. As in blog. As in B as in blog. Or Um, boring, depending on how you look at it. Well, it it could be that, but ours isn't, I promise. Um, uh, Slash chp will take you to the podcast page. For pathetic (laughs) <laughs> this, is, this is a downer episode um, well uh, in the meanwhile uh, I wish all of you good weeks uh, for me David Grubbs uh, for Michael Farmer and from Nathan, Nathan Gilmore and uh, in the words of Stan Lee Excelsior Sisters, we'll do it for our brothers.